are listening to Footprints on Our Hearts, a podcast about baby loss, legacy, and learning to live again with me, Alison Ingleby. The baby loss community is one that no one wants to join, but together we can break the silence around baby loss and help each other navigate the rocky road that is grief, because all children leave footprints on our hearts. Welcome to episode 10 of Footprints on Our Hearts. I can't believe we made it this far, episode 10 already. Gosh. And to those of you who have been listening since the very first episode, high fives for joining me on this journey. I would love to hear which episodes have been your favorite to listen to, or perhaps which have resonated with you most. And if this is your first episode you're listening to with the podcast, don't forget you can go back and listen to all the previous episodes or pick and choose those which um, you feel are most relevant to you. So in today's interview, I talked to Chris Binney about his son, Henry, a dad's perspective on loss, grief and pregnancy after loss and how healthcare professionals can support dads better. Chris has so many words of wisdom um, in this interview, particularly around things such as memory making and society's expectations of how men should, in inverted commas, grieve. So it's a really great episode for anyone to listen to. And while Chris is obviously talking from the perspective of a male parent, I'm sure that some of what he says will also resonate with mums in a same-sex partnership who weren't the parent carrying their baby. We did have a few technical difficulties with this call, so apologies. Some of the transitions between my questions and Chris's answers are a little bit rough, um, but I think you should still be able to get the core of his message and really enjoy our discussion and what he has to say. So I'm not going to talk much about the virus that shall not be named this week, other than to say that I hope you are all safe and well and coping with the added anxiety this is bringing to your life. I would really love to hear what you've been finding most difficult about the situation we're in, whether this has made your grief worse or perhaps stopped you doing things that you normally would do to to cope with your grief or manage your grief. And if you have an anniversary coming up in the next few weeks or you're very recently bereaved, I'm sending some extra special love your way. I have been wondering, toying with the idea about perhaps doing a specific episode on coronavirus, grief and anxiety, just to share some of your stories um, and tips for coping with the current crisis and ideas on perhaps how you can celebrate a baby's birthday when you can't go out and do the things you'd normally want to do. If that is something that you'd like to hear or would you would find useful, please do let me know on Instagram, Twitter, or by emailing me. Um, if I don't hear anything, I'll take that as a no. <laughs> and finally, I just wanted to quickly mention transcripts. So I started out doing transcript for each episode of the podcast, which you can find on the podcast website. And the main reason I wanted to do this was to be able to share the interviews with people who prefer to read rather than listen to stories. I know not everyone likes to listen to podcasts or perhaps has the time to listen to podcasts. And sometimes listening to stories like this can be a lot more hard hitting than reading them. I think it's just a preference. Some people prefer listening, some people prefer reading. So I really wanted to make the interviews accessible to everyone. That said, 
I'm not actually sure how many people are reading them. So I do have a, another question for you this week. <laughs> have you read them and do you want transcripts? Given you're listening to this, maybe I'm asking the wrong people, but if you do know someone who is reading rather than listening to the podcast, I would love to hear about that. If you do read them, you may have noticed that I haven't posted transcripts for the past few episodes. And this is, well, basically it comes down to time. So I use an AI tool to generate the initial transcript, which does save a lot of work, but it still takes me at least two hours per episode to edit that transcript into something coherent. If you've ever done, tried dictation software or anything like that, you'll know that even with the best software, things still come through, don't come through perfectly. Um, and certainly, you know, the, the AI software is decent that I use, but it is a free software. So there are limitations to what it can do. And that two hours is in addition to the probably four to six hours it takes me to record, edit and produce East episode. And to be honest, it's getting a bit much. I really love doing this podcast. I love doing the interviews and talking to people about their babies. But I find the transcripts a drain, both physically and emotionally. And I really want to keep putting this podcast out weekly, but I can't do that and produce a transcript each week, particularly not in the current climate where, you know, I think we're all having to kind of manage our self-care um, and things a little and maybe spending a bit more time on that than than normal. That said, I really do hope at some point I can start doing the transcripts again and set it up. If anyone is interested in volunteering for that task, I would love to hear from you. I'm also looking to set up a Patreon scheme over the next few weeks so you can support the podcast and help me cover the costs of producing it each week. Um, and that's not my time necessarily. It's the actual costs of hosting the podcast and um, the software I use to record and all that kind of stuff. Um, just so I can keep things sustainable and keep doing this week after week. Um, it also gives me a bit more energy to do it if I know people are listening. <laughs> so that's why I'm always asking you to let me know if you're listening and whether you enjoy it. <laughs> anyway, in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this interview with Chris as much as I did. And take care of yourselves and stay safe. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Chris Binney, father to Henry, who was stillborn in 2014, and Robin and Halley, his rainbow twins. Welcome to the podcast, Chris, and thanks so much for joining me. We've got a lot to talk about today, but let's start by going back to the beginning. I understand that your partner's first pregnancy with Henry was rather unexpected. Could you start by telling us when you found out you were expecting a baby and how you felt? Uh, yes. So I, do you know what? I can't even remember the specific circumstances in which we found out. I think it was, um, my partner was in the middle of some quite significant ankle surgery at the time. And I think it, there was a, a query about why she was feeling unwell and whether or not it was related to some of the anesthetic that she'd had previously. And, and I think she worked on the basis that the first thing they would, they would ask her is whether or not she was pregnant. So she did a test to rule it out really rather than anything else. Gosh, that must have been a surprise. And how did her pregnancy go with Henry? And how did you both kind of adapt to this new reality? So she was high risk from the start. She was always consultant led because she'd had this sort of rather heavy duty ankle surgery 
uh, around the time that she fell pregnant and she's she was diabetic um, and asthmatic so uh, so for a variety of reasons she was always categorized as being high risk so we were anticipating a, a complex journey but actually it was it was pretty smooth we didn't we didn't have all the problems that we were expecting uh, everything went pretty much seamlessly there was never any real cause for alarm and did you have any extra scans or anything as because she was high risk yes i think I, to be honest i can't remember how how frequently she was having the scans but she certainly was was kept under quite close watch throughout and at no point was there any suggestion that there was any there were any issues or any problems okay and at this point did you have any knowledge or awareness of baby loss or stillbirth had you come across it before absolutely none it hadn't hadn't crossed my radar in in any shape or form I think like a lot of first-time parents who don't have any exposure to that uh, we were very much working on the basis that you don't tell anyone until you get to 12 weeks and then after 12 weeks everything's fine and then you get your 20-week scan to find out if you're having a boy or a girl because if, until you know any better, um, that's what the 20-week scan's for and, and now obviously I know a lot better than that. But uh, we certainly, I think like a lot of people, were naive enough to work on the basis that uh, once you get through those early scans, everything's plain sailing. Stillbirth certainly wasn't anything that was was even remotely on my radar if you'd asked me even the day before he died what about stillbirth then I would have said that it was something that happened you know in the 1800s maybe or or, or in in the third world it, I certainly wouldn't have thought of it as something that happened to you know white middle class families in in first world countries it's just not a thing that you you, you see as being something that's that happens to people like you yeah, and I agree. I mean, I my pregnancy was also, I was equally naive. I thought, I, I knew about miscarriage and thought, you know, that might be a risk. But then, as you say, you get to that 12-week scan and it's, it's like someone ticks a box, isn't it? It's like, oh, you're okay now. Keep going. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and what I've learned subsequently is that, and, and certainly I found this with the pregnancy with, with the twins, was actually we found out very early in that in that pregnancy and i'm sure we'll come to that later but there isn't a safe point and so i think a lot of parents when they get to subsequent pregnancies after a loss actually a lot of people tell people very early uh, and there's this expectation that well you don't want you don't want to jinx it and you're not going to jinx it this isn't those are not the sorts of things that define whether or not you're going to have a, a happy outcome or not um, but i think what a lot of parents come to realize in subsequent pregnancies is I'm going to tell people very early because I'm expecting it to go wrong. And when it goes wrong, I need people to know that there was something to go wrong. Um, so I, I've learned from that, that actually there isn't a safe point and 12 weeks doesn't suddenly give you uh, the green light to start telling people that you're going to bring a baby home because you can, you can get to 37 plus five and, and have your world change completely. So there isn't a safe zone of, at which point you can start telling people. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually, a really interesting observation. And we will come on to talk about the twins and pregnancy after loss in a bit. But to go back to Henry, so, so far you've had a trouble-free pregnancy, looking forward to, to seeing your baby boy. At what point did things begin to go wrong for you? So we, uh, Barney was always booked in for an induction at 38 weeks because of her diabetes. So that was always planned it was it was a scheduled induction and we had the the, the date booked well well in advance uh, for the 2nd of may uh, which was a friday but 
there'd been absolutely no issues whatsoever. So on the Wednesday, the 30th of April, it was my last day before I started my paternity leave. Um, and I was, I, I sell medical equipment for a living. So I travel around the, the, the north of England uh, and we lived in Harrogate and I was in Macclesfield down in Cheshire. Uh, and I pulled up, they'd ha- she had a routine appointment booked for the Wednesday and they'd said, well, you know, you've got this appointment booked. So there's no point cancelling it. Uh, you might as well just come in anyway. And then it became something that was a routine appointment with a quick scan. Um, and I pulled up into the hospital in Macclesfield down in Cheshire at about 11 o'clock in the morning and got a phone call from Bryony ringing me from the antenatal clinic. And she said, you've got to come home. Henry's gone. Uh, and that was the first at any point that there was any sort of issue uh, we we knew that there was n- there had been nothing up to that point to suggest there were any issues, and it, this was a quick routine appointment two days before the induction, essentially just to tick a box and make sure everything was all set for the Friday. Uh, so we had no no warning signs, nothing to to give us a heads up of this sort of impending doom that was that was coming towards us like a like an out of control train. Really, it just kind of crept up on us, and two days before there we were. And what, how did you, what were your feelings and your thoughts, I guess, when she said those words to you? I, I think, you know, I've reflected on this so much over the years. And I think everybody's expectation is that your first emotion will be absolute devastation. And and, and I think that's not how it worked for me. My first uh, sensation was just sort of numbness because I had no real, you know, it just completely blindsided me. Um, I had no real understanding of what was going on. Like we discussed a moment ago, the whole concept of of stillbirth or, or later pregnancy loss was so far off my radar that I, I, I couldn't even comprehend. I don't think you can properly comprehend in that moment what that actually means. I, I hadn't quite grasped it. And I was two and a half hours away from home. I just knew I had to get home. Um, but I hadn't really processed what I was going back to. I think, yeah, numbness was that sort of overwhelming sense because I didn't have a full picture of, of, of the situation. Obviously, the, the, the more raw emotions come in due course. But initially, yeah, I just sort of felt numb because I didn't understand what was happening. So you went back and did you join Bryony at the hospital or was she back home at that point? So no, by the time I got back, she was at home um, and we went back up into the, we went back up to the hospital uh, that afternoon to see the consultant again uh, together, so that we could have a conversation about where things would go from there. But you know, initially, when I got back, she was already at home. Uh, and, yeah, we went back up later on that afternoon to talk about what the plan was, uh, and essentially, the plan was: you're booked in for an induction on Friday. It's Wednesday afternoon, so we'll see you on Friday. Um, it was said in a much more gentle and kind uh compassionate way than that but but essentially the the plan and the timetable that had been laid out for us didn't change one jot um and so we kind of went home on a wednesday afternoon to be told well we'll see you in sort of 36 hours or so uh, and, and that's a really interesting point for a lot of brief parents i think there is this uh, and we talk a lot about it on our on our study days this period of time that we started calling the void because I think for a lot of parents, when you hit the hospital, your care is often very good. 
But for many bereaved parents, particularly in later stages, uh, there can be this two or three day window between finding out that your baby's died and going into hospital to start the process of, of, of induction or, or, or labor through any other means. Um, and quite often parents feel like they've been dropped in that period. Uh, and that's certainly a sensation that I felt. We weren't given any kind of guidance about what to do or what we should now pack in terms of a, a, a hospital bag, because a lot of the stuff that was in the hospital bag is now utterly irrelevant. But then there are other things that you might want to put into your hospital bag for this new circumstance. Uh, so I think one of the things that's really important in terms of developing care is finding ways that professionals can help to fill that void and, and give parents a bit more of a steer because I, like I said like a lot of parents I think we just felt sort of dropped for a couple of days once we got in the care was great but up to that point we were just kind of in a flat spin at home without any kind of guidance and you can't process what's going on for you at that moment in time because this circumstance is so unexpected and and, and you have no reference point for it so you've been sent home to come back in on the Friday for this induction what was your experience of supporting your partner as she was going through labor and giving birth to a baby who you knew wouldn't be breathing at the end of it mother and baby whether that's a living baby or or, or, or a baby that's died um Brian got really ill, so she she had quite severe preeclampsia in labour. Uh, blood pressure was through the roof. She was sort of fitting and and, and passing out. Uh, and actually, I, I think I, I'm not sure I forgot, but the fact that our son had died became secondary in that moment because my focus was on supporting her physically with what she was going through, rather than the end point that we were working towards and, and, and my focus as a partner was more on whether or not she was going to die herself. And that was, uh, you know, that to the, to a non medically trained individual that appeared at various points during the later stages of that process to be something that was very much pos uh, a potential outcome and certainly appeared to me to be on the cards at, at various points. Uh, the professionals of course were a lot, more aware of what was going on and were a lot more calm about it but that was certainly my fear at that moment in time was whether or not my partner was going to die as well uh, and so again a lot of it became quite medicalized so a lot of the focus for the professionals uh, was on making sure that she was okay and I, I remember saying to the consultants at one point um, you don't have to keep my son alive you just have to make sure that she doesn't die as well. Uh, and uh, I think we all experience through this journey points where everything's a complete blur and then other points where we just find sort of absolute clarity. And this one, that was one of those moments where I just found absolute clarity just to say to this consultant, you know, you, you do whatever you need to do because you're not trying to balance the the outcome a successful outcome for both mother and baby in this situation you actually only have to focus on a successful outcome for one the, the successful outcome at this point is mum doesn't die it, it you can't change the reality of the other part of that equation so um my focus became overwhelmingly on 
whether or not she was going to come out the other side of it rather than anything else at that point. Yeah, that's perfectly understandable, but adds, uh, I guess, an extra layer of sort of trauma and grief to what is already a difficult kind of process or perhaps distracts you from, you know, even the thought that, you know, that Henry was already dead. And what happened? Did she, was she, did she continue? Was she sick after Henry was born or did, because uh, often with preeclampsia, once the baby's born, I think that kind of helps in terms of the. the no, it was, it was exactly like that. Essentially once, once he was born, everything went, went and became really relatively stabilized almost immediately um all the obviously they kept a very close eye on her um in the hours that followed but essentially almost everything reverted back to normal straight away after he was born uh, which like you say i think is 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 quite a common thing for for preeclampsia and did you feel that you were supported by the hospital both as a couple and you as a dad in the aftermath of henry's birth Yes, I do. I think, you know, I've spent so much time involved in improvements and developments in bereavement care over the course of the last nearly six years. And I think they did a great job in the context of how bereavement care was being delivered six years ago. Um, I think the the professionals that we had looking after us were, were fantastic, kind, compassionate individuals. And I, I, I would like to think that the way in which they deliver care has developed over the last six years, just as I've seen it develop elsewhere. But again, without any real reference point, it's hard to kind of measure it against anything. I, and I look around the country now and I see different parents getting different experiences depending on which trust they're in, in terms of what memory making they're able to access and things like that. And a lot of that is to do with how innovative or forward thinking a particular trust or even a particular midwife within a trust is about providing some of that stuff but yeah i think we we were as a couple we were supported very well um i felt relatively well supported as a dad uh, because i think i developed a, a, a pretty good bond with the midwife that delivered henry amanda um but again, you know, the focus is never on the dads. And to some extent, that's absolutely right and proper. Um, but we aren't the priority. And, and I think most dads don't expect to be the priority. But I think a lot of maternity staff aren't geared up towards including dads or, or focusing on dads as in addition to mum and baby. They're, by by definition, their their default setting is mum and baby because that's what a that's what maternity is uh, so I think it's a bit of a culture change for a lot of maternity professionals to start finding ways to include dads and in a bereavement setting that becomes so so important in a, in a normal conventional setting where everything's fine uh, a mum comes in a family comes in mum has baby everything's fine and, and everyone goes home they don't really need to concentrate on the dads very much, but obviously in a bereavement setting, the the landscape of, of the care that they're providing changes entirely and, and they have to find ways to to add add that extra layer of care that includes the dads as well, which isn't something that they necessarily do instinctively. And is there anything in particular that you feel they could do to include dads more in that care? 
Yeah, I, 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 one of the things I think is a really effective way to involve dads more, I think a lot of blokes are control freaks and they like to be doing stuff. They like to feel like they are in control of a situation. And I think one of the most effective ways to engage dads in a bereavement care setting and involve them is to get them or encourage them or invite them to be active participants in the memory-making processes. Um, and I think historically, a lot of parents' mem- ex- experiences in memory-making are midwife takes baby and does hand and footprints and comes back and gives you the hand and footprints. Um, and I think that this is something that I'm really passionate about because I see how this has developed uh, and midwives that are really innovative and forward-thinking understood this quicker than maybe some others, that actually there's a difference. There's a really big difference between memories that you're given and memories that you make and i think the things that we remember as parents are the intangibles the 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 ink hand and footprint on a card that you're given is a is a physical manifestation of the memory it's not the memory in itself and so i think the best way to involve dads is to encourage them to be part of that do you want to come and do the hand and footprints with me do you want to be part of this to the point where, you know, if the dad goes off with the midwife or, or, or goes to the, to the side of the room with the midwife and does the hand and footprints with the midwife and he does a rubbish set of hand and footprints, midwife's still going to do another set. That's going to be the perfect set that they'll turn into cufflinks or necklaces or whatever else it might be down the line. But he's going to keep the rubbish set as well because he did them. And that's the thing that you can't measure. The bit that parents are going to remember forever bit where years down the line they'll turn around and say do you remember the really rubbish handprints that you did that becomes part of their journey that's part of their experience and if you're inviting parents to be part of that those are the real memories those are the things that will stick in their mind when they're 90 years old and 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 remembering only snapshots of their life in a in a care home somewhere the thing that they remember is when they did it they don't remember the bit of card that they were given and so I think what we've seen over the last few years in terms of the development of how memory making is offered is increasingly we're seeing parents being invited to participate in that. And I think that's really important because the memories that we make are far more precious to us than the memories that we're given. That is such an important distinction. Um, and I really hope there are some midwives listening to this um, who take that on board um, because, I mean, we... Yeah, I mean, our experience was the midwife took Sky away and did things with her and then she came back. And we, honestly, I don't think we ever thought to question that. And I think that's one of the ironies, isn't it, of kind of baby loss and stillbirth and these things that happen is that you don't know anything about it before it happens to you. And yet once you've been through it, you know, obviously you never want to ha- it to happen again. But if it did, you'd be so much more prepared and you'd know exactly what you wanted to do and all the things and opportunities that are open to you. But for us, certainly that first time, I think we were kind of almost doing what we were told, I guess. And and I don't think we had those expectations or, we, you know, did, we didn't know what we could do. Like Well, like you say, because we don't know. Because this is in the vast majority of circumstances, this is the first time any of us have ever been thrust into an experience like this. And 
Our brains are fried. Our emotions are all over the place. We don't know any better. And what we need from the professionals that are caring for us is they need to be our brains and our eyes and our ears for us. They need to do our thinking and our hearing and our seeing for us because we're not capable in that moment of thinking clearly for ourselves. And don't get me wrong, there are going to be parents for whom active participation in memory making isn't right and they won't want that. And that's that's right as well. What's really important is that parents are given an informed choice so that they can make that decision and make that distinction for themselves. Uh, and professionals have to be willing to go back and revisit that because we're not thinking clearly, we're not processing clearly. I mean, I talk a lot about this when we're training professionals and I compare it to, you know, those 500 piece jigsaws of baked beans. And and if you get a couple that have just been, that are going through this experience and you tip out a jigsaw that, where all the puzzle pieces look exactly the same and say to them, do this jigsaw. And then two minutes later, you come up and go, do you want to do some memory making? Sure. You want to come and do the hand and footprints with us? Cause we're going to go and do that. They're going to say no, because they can't process this great big pile of jigsaw pieces that is their brain at this moment in time. But if you come back a few hours later and they've got a couple of the sides done and the top right hand corner is starting to take shape, that in their brains, they're starting to put everything into some kind of order at that point. And if you revisit that question with them at that point, they may very well say yes. And what's really important for professionals to remember is we're British. So if you offer us something once and we say no, even if we change our minds, we're probably not going to say anything because it's not in our nature to do that as a, as a society. We'll be desperately waiting for somebody to come along and go, Would you, are you sure you don't want to do this? Because you, yes, you said no yesterday, but you're allowed to change your mind. And I think what a lot of professionals will find in that situation is the parents will go, oh, yes, thank God you've asked because I've been waiting for somebody to ask me again because I did change my mind, but I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to make a fuss or be a bother or be a burden because that's how our society is built. So a lot of parents will change their mind if they've said no initially, but they won't say anything. So they have to have it re-offered to them to allow them the out to be able to take that opportunity that they would otherwise miss out on. Um, and, and so I think that's such an important thing for them to, to re-offer those sorts of things, but to recognise that giving parents the chance to participate in that stuff, you're actually giving them more memories because you're giving them the physical things and you're giving them the intangible things. And what most parents want more than anything in that situation, other than the obvious, they didn't want to be in that situation in the first place, we want to find ways to give them all the opportunities for memory making that they can, because I'm yet to meet a parent that go that will turn around years down the line and go, I have too many memories. I wish I didn't have that many memories. Or I've got 75 photos. I wish I only had 72. They always want more. But once you're out of that situation, once you're out of that environment, you can't create them. So you've got to have ways to capture them at the time. And, and that's finding ways to involve them in stuff and get the intangible stuff coming through. That's the stuff that's really going to stick in their hearts forever. Yeah. And I remember talking to one of my other guests and her. So she said that when, when she went into hospital, one of the I think it was one of the midwives or something. I don't know if it was her midwife or someone said to her, it was like, 
just make sure you take loads of photos, just take loads of photos, you know, you'll you'll want to look back on them later. And it wasn't something that she had even considered at that point. Um, but she didn't, she said it was the most valuable thing that anyone could have said to her at that point. Um, and, you know, again, we, the midwife took Sky away and took a few photos of her, but we were never, you know, there was never any suggestion that maybe we'd want a photo as a family or, you know, of us holding her or anything like that. Um, yeah, and again, it's it's really hard, isn't it? Because you're looking back on your experience and wishing you could have done things differently or known what you did know. But yeah, of course, and 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 you know, I just think people, anybody that says they have no regrets or they wouldn't change anything about it, I think is probably lying because we can all look back on this once we know more and wish that we'd had other things. Um, but it's about how we can utilize that to make sure that other people are getting off of those things in the future, um, and. and whether it's photos or anything else, finding ways to make sure that more professionals understand it so that they can offer more things to more families is, is, is absolutely critical, I think, because we don't know any, we don't, we don't know any different. Yeah, no, I agree. And we'll come on to talk about um, Beyond B and your work with them in a little bit. But just moving on to then talk about grief and those initial sort of weeks and months of grief are really hard. How did you find you grieved during that initial period and how did that differ from your partner? I think I did what a lot of men probably do, which is essentially just not grieve and, and sort of refuse to grieve. And I, and I focused very heavily on work and I, and I just threw myself into things that were going to allow me to distract myself from this reality because I, I, you know, I think like a lot of men, I, I was focused on being strong. Um, and we have this sort of very patriarchal society that we've created and we fall into the trap of thinking that the patriarchy is, and it often is, is this thing that is used by men to, to, to suppress women. But actually the patriarchy does men no favours either because we've created an environment and a culture where there's this expectation on men to be strong all the time and not to show emotion and not to, not, not to allow the emotive elements of their personalities to come through because we have to just be them be the man and, and you hear all these sort of platitudes all the time that real men don't cry and all this sort of stuff and it's all absolute nonsense because all that happens is you you spend weeks or months or, or years sometimes for, for a lot of guys bottling that stuff up and it's gonna come out one way or another it'll find a way out because as human beings whether we're male or female we're defaulted to have emotions we are sentient human beings so um this idea that there's this expectation on men to be strong is absolute nonsense but that's what i did because that's what our culture and our society tells us to do and it was backed up by the way in which society sort of supported and 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 determined by the way in which society saw me and how I should grieve as a man, because I spent months or, or years even constantly fielding the question, how's Bryony doing? How's your wife doing? Uh, and I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of times anybody actually asked me how I was doing, how I was coping with my grief, because there's this, again, it's a sort of, it's the wider society flip side of that perception that maternity is a mother and baby thing. I think a lot of men will, if they're, talking later on in their experience will say actually there's this sense that the mum's the one whose baby has died 
and the dad's the one who's there to support the mum whose baby's died. And it's very easy for people to overlook the fact that the dad's baby's died as well. And so it can be really isolating for men. I think a lot of women find it easier to find support because almost instinctively women are more capable of being empathetic towards another woman that's gone through that. Whereas for a lot of blokes, blokes don't do talking very well. They don't do showing emotion very well. And for a lot of men, when some when one of their mates is having a tough time, the solution is, should we go down the pub and watch sport? Um, and actually, a lot of dads want to talk about this experience, but their mates don't know how to talk about it because it's so far removed from everybody's sphere of reference, sphere of influence, just like it was for me just before it happened. I wouldn't have known how to support a friend who'd gone through that before I went through it myself but blokes aren't very good at saying do you want to talk about it do you want to tell me about him do you want me to do you want to show me pictures of him that's something that women might be more often better tuned to doing blokes find themselves just getting left because their mates don't know how to start it's such an awkward conversation for so many people we've all been through it so now we can talk about it a lot of us can talk about it like we're talking about the weather because it's just our reality. It's our normal. But for people who haven't experienced it, it's such an awkward conversation. And this, again, I think is down to how our society functions because as a society, the British society is awful about talking about death. And that's magnified a hundredfold when you're talking about the death of a baby. People don't like talking about death because it makes them feel uncomfortable. People certainly don't like talking about the fact that babies die because that makes everybody uncomfortable because nobody wants to think that it happens. And I think when it happens to somebody that you know, it reminds you that actually this happens to everybody. Uh, and so that makes people very anxious. And, you know, every bereaved parent I know will talk about friends or family members that, that distance themselves entirely from them as a result of this experience because i think people feel like it's something that's contagious and you might catch it uh, and so we you know the easiest thing is to run away or, or or disappear down the supermarket aisle or across the road to avoid a conversation um, and actually that's the absolute opposite of what parents need in that situation whether that's mums or dads what they need is people to cross the road to talk to them not cross the road to avoid them so do you have any words of wisdom or tips, I guess, for any dads who might be listening to this and are in a similar situation in terms of, I guess, maybe feeling like they have no one to talk to or and sort of putting on that kind of that strong, that strong routine and perhaps not allowing themselves that time and space to grieve? It's happened over the course of the sort of five and a half, nearly six years since Henry died is social media has evolved to the point where there are a lot more dads talking openly about their experiences now. Um, and the nice thing about Instagram in particular is that communication is instantaneous and you can reach out to somebody who's had that same experience or similar experience to you and make contact almost immediately. Um, so what I would say to other dads is actually take the opportunity. It, if you feel like you're being well supported by your friends and family around you then that's fantastic but if you're not reach out to people who are publicly talking about their experiences on social media because they're publicly talking about it because they want to give other people the opportunity to engage with them uh, so if you feel like you want to talk to somebody there are quite a few dads out there now who are 
talking openly. And that's something that wasn't the case five and a half, six years ago. Um, so I would say, you know, reach out and, and talk to people. Don't, absolutely don't try and bottle it all up and hope that you'll be able to kind of ride the storm out because it doesn't work. It might take weeks or months or even years for it to actually come out somewhere, but it will come out and that can, that can cause huge problems down the line. So I think the best thing is, is to make sure that you're talking. And did you find, was there a point for you where it, where it came out or you, I guess, began to grieve more openly at all or, or what was your kind of process? Yeah, like I, that? I think I, I kind of bottled it up for about 10 months uh, and that, and I got to about 10 months out and, and I, I couldn't just keep riding over the top of it any longer. Um, so that was the point at which I really started to struggle was sort of Mar- March 2015. I really started to struggle. Um, Brian had been diagnosed with breast cancer at around that time as well. So that just sort of lumped something else on top. Um, and I think my capacity to absorb all of this stuff, I think maybe the cancer, the cancer diagnosis was the thing that maybe pushed me over the top. Not my cancer diagnosis, of course, but I think my capacity to absorb all this grief and all these emotions and all this struggle just got overloaded. Uh, and, and for a lot of blokes, it is. They'll, they'll, it'll keep loading on and loading on and loading on until something snaps. Um, and so I think, yeah, I got about 10 months down the line and then I just I couldn't I couldn't keep on top of it all anymore. It all just became too much. And how did you figure your way out through the following weeks in terms of sort of dealing with that grief after it all came out um well i think as I said we we found ourselves in a situation where we had something else to concentrate on uh, at that moment in times okay we'll come on to talk about henry's legacy in a bit and um, but first i wanted to talk a little bit about your twin daughters i've spoken to several mothers about pregnancy after loss but i'd love to get a father's perspective now, obviously, you know, Bryony being diagnosed with breast cancer must have been a, a sort of difficult experience to go through that process. When did you guys first start thinking about trying again after losing Henry? So we 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 started thinking about trying again very soon after, but but we weren't getting anywhere. Um, obviously then a breast cancer diagnosis sort of changes the landscape on it because it's almost like they take a bat phone out bat phone out from under the desk and diagnose you with breast cancer and send you straight to the IVF clinic for an appointment um, because they need to go through this, the, that process before they can start chemotherapy. Uh, so we had been trying again. We weren't getting anywhere. Um, we weren't entitled to IVF on the NHS because we'd had a successful natural pregnancy Um so ironically, having a full-term stillbirth takes you out of the criteria for IVF on the NHS. Um, so because we'd conceived naturally, we didn't meet the criteria until you get diagnosed with breast cancer because they know that the landscape's changed. So we found a way to get IVF on the NHS even though we hadn't met the criteria. It was a rather extreme way of going about things, um, but, 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 but a, a way nonetheless. So we, we kind of had been trying, weren't getting anywhere, um, and then the landscape, the pathway was was sort of rewritten for us by circumstances. And when when was this? How long was this after you lost Henry? So that was ten months after Henry died. That you so got it was the in the early part of yeah. twenty fifteen. Yeah. Okay. And 
when Bryony got pregnant, how did you feel when you found out that you were expecting twins? So, you know, then we'd fast forwarded sort of to 2018 because you have to be a certain period of time down the line from your cancer treatment. You're, you're being clear from the end of your cancer treatment before they'll let you continue the rest of the process. So obviously we found out very early that the IVF, the round of IVF had worked um, in that first pregnancy. Um, pregnancy after loss is the complete opposite. Your only reference point is that you're waiting for something to go wrong. Um, so we'd got to about eight weeks uh, and Bryony had a massive bleed and our expectation was that our baby had died. Um, and it was only when we went in for the scan to essentially, because we were expecting to be told your baby's died and the sonographer said, no, everything seems fine. There's the first embryo. There's the second embryo. Um, and, and, and that's the point at which we'd gone for in, in the space of about four seconds from waiting to be told the thing that we already knew in our hearts, which was that we'd lost the baby to being told, no, baby's absolutely fine. And there's two of them. Um, and, and I think that probably illustrates quite neatly in a lot of ways, the enormous roller coaster that pregnancy after loss represents because it's so full of highs and lows and ups and downs and, and emotional challenges. Uh, it's almost impossible to describe effectively, but I think that particular incident kind of sums it up quite nicely because we went into that scan room absolutely 100% expecting to be told that our baby had died and we walked out pregnant with twins, which which is an extraordinary about turn of circumstance. Um, but yeah, I think pregnancy after loss, you see that all the way through. There's always something. Every scan, you're expecting to be told, no, this isn't happening anymore. Um, I don't think anybody who's pregnant after a loss ever honestly believes that they're going to get to the other end and get a successful outcome until they do. Until you've actually got a living, breathing baby in your arms or babies. Um, and even then, your, your fears are absolute. But no, I don't think there's ever any expectation of a, of, of a, of a positive outcome in a pregnancy after loss because you've, you've had your fingers burned already. And I guess as a father, obviously, you don't have that physical, the physical sensations of pregnancy, of feeling your body change, having the babies grow inside you. And I guess it must feel like everything is very much out of your control. Like there's not much you can do to you know, to make this go right, um, to stop things going wrong. How how did you sort of manage those feelings? And I guess manage your mental health in terms of coping with a rainbow pregnancy and supporting your partner through it? I think you're right. Because you don't have that physical connection, there's that sense that this is something that's happening outside you and you've got limited control. I think what I tried to do to have the sense that I had some level of control was utilize the things that I'd learned and the contacts that I'd made and the, and the network that I'd built through some of the voluntary work I'd done mm -hmm. to and I think this is quite a common thing for parents but certainly for dads to advocate for these unborn children because bereaved parents in a rainbow pregnancy will 
push and harry and challenge and question everything that professionals are telling them because we didn't know we had to advocate last time and our babies died so the next time round we're going to make damn sure that we advocate and we question and we challenge everything because from my from my mental health from my point of view i wanted to make sure that when something went wrong in this subsequent pregnancy and 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 i say when deliberately because i had no expectation that that was, there was going to be anything other than when something goes wrong but i wanted to be absolutely clear and absolutely sure that when something goes wrong it won't be because i haven't left no stone unturned because i haven't done absolutely everything within my power to push towards a positive outcome and for us that actually meant you know transferring our care to to a specialist center 80 odd miles from home to make sure that we were getting the best possible care that we could uh, and, and doing everything within our powers to try and get to try and get the positive outcome at the end of it whilst having no expectations whatsoever that we'd succeed and how did it feel when the twins were finally born and you had them alive in the world with you? Absolutely terrifying. Uh, and, and I think if if your first child dies, when your second child or children arrive in the world, yes, there's this, there's this overwhelming sense of relief. And, and, and Brian had spent a number of weeks in hospital as an inpatient, again, with preeclampsia. Um, and so they were born at 34 weeks, so they were premature. Um, so there was this overwhelming sense of relief that actually they were out and they were alive and they were breathing and they were crying. But then there's this sense of, well, what the hell do I do now? I don't know how to, and this is, I think, where it can be really challenging for a lot of parents at the end of a successful pregnancy after loss we're not geared up particularly if it was your first child that died we're not geared up to parenting living babies we've adapted to how you parent a baby that's not with you but parenting living breathing babies is a whole different ball game and i get you know that's no different from anybody who gets to take their babies home without all the challenges that we went through beforehand but you throw, you're throwing in an extra layer of fear because for me, even even after they were born, my reference point was something's going to go wrong. At some point, something's going to go wrong. You know, do we get to keep them? Are they here forever? Or, or, or at what point, you know, good things don't happen because you've become used to the fact that you don't get the happy ending. So when you start to feel like you've got it, you're waiting for it to be taken away from you. Um, and I remember we were on the NICU in Manchester and we'd been out for dinner one evening and we came back to the NICU. It was about 11 o'clock at night. And the the nurse said, oh, um, you know, Robin wasn't taking her feed very well. So I put her on to, I put her to sleep on her front um, instead of on her back to see if that'll settle her. Um, and, I absolutely lost my mind because everything that I knew was that actually babies shouldn't be put to sleep on the front. They should go to sleep on their backs because that's a safe, all the stuff about safe sleeping and things like that. Um, and, and I couldn't comprehend why the neonatal nurse thought it was okay to put it to sleep on a front. Um, so I went absolutely nuts. 
And she said, no, it's absolutely fine because if something goes wrong, she's hooked up to all the machines, the alarms will go off. And to which my response was, do you not think maybe it would be better to not put her in the place that might put the might have the alarms going off in the first place? Uh, and the challenge for those neonatal nurses was that they couldn't understand why parents of fundamentally perfectly healthy babies that were just on their unit to because they're a little bit premature were so anxious because it had been lost in translation we'd been really carefully monitored as rainbow pregnancy parents all the way through by the maternity services and when we got transferred from maternity to neonatal that slipped through the cracks so they had no understanding of why we were so anxious um and it wasn't until I said to the neonatal matron, you know, I, I'm not an expert. And she was trying to explain to me why it was okay and how it had been in the past when she would, when she was parenting, when she was having her children 20, 30 years ago and, and how things had changed. Um, and it wasn't until I said to her, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert on safe sleeping. I'm not an expert on being a neonatal intensive care nurse, but I am an expert on burying my own children. And the penny drops for people because they suddenly understand actually you're not just a dad that's being really awkward on neonatal at half past 11 on the Thursday night. You're really anxious for a reason. Uh, and, and so, you know, that's the big challenge. I, I, I couldn't comprehend the fact that they thought it was okay to put her to sleep on the front because to me, if you put a baby to sleep on the front, you're increasing their risk of sudden infant death syndrome and then they're going to die. And actually, if it's going to happen to anyone, it's going to happen to us. So I think, anxiety and and stress and and postnatal depression and all these sorts of things come along like an absolute sledgehammer once you've got your living babies and i think people really struggle to understand that because they can't understand well if you didn't find yourself struck down with anxiety and stress or postnatal depression after your baby died how can you possibly find yourself dealing with all of those things when you've got your happy ending because you're fixed now aren't you because you've got your living baby and everything's okay um and actually the, the stresses and challenges of of working out how you manage that anxiety and that stress when you've got babies that are living and breathing is is a whole different ball game again i can imagine i haven't experienced it but i can imagine that to be the case Okay, because we're running a little bit short on time. So let's get back to Henry. And before we start sort of talking about some of the things you did after he died, I've got one question to ask of you, because looking at your Instagram feed, there are a lot of pine cones on there. So what's with the pine cones? So I think the pine cone thing, I think a lot of bereaved parents have symbols or, 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 or something that represents in their mind their child that's not with them and for a lot of parents that might be butterflies or rainbows uh, and again for a lot of parents it's things that pop up every now and again whether that's a feather or something like that that, that they can see and, and associate with them uh, when we started going up to visit henry's grave after his funeral we discovered that the baby section in the cemetery in harrogate is backed by a, a massive load of huge pine trees so every time we went up there there were pine cones all over the the ground around his grave um and it just seemed to me that you know, it always occurred to me that 
little boys love pine cones. They love picking up pine cones, stashing pine cones in their pockets, taking them everywhere. So it, that just became a really natural symbol for us because they were always around him whenever we went up to visit him. And they're just something that, uh, that you can just pick up and take with you and leave places. And, uh, but I think the other thing that I really like about pine cones as a, as a symbol is that every single one of them is a little bit different. They're, they're a bit like fingerprints, you know, they're such a recognizable symbol, but they're all completely unique in their own way. And so that became a really positive symbol for me of, of the fact that he was unique and it, that he would be unique. Um, and it really kind of became a, became a little thing for us on a, on a sort of family and personal level, because I started, I referee rugby on Saturdays and I always start and now I just I started taking a pine cone from his grave to each of my games and it was just a way for me of him coming to my games with me even though he'd never come to my game um and then I spoke the first time I stood up and spoke about our experience was at the launch of the Saving Babies Care Bundle uh, Saving Babies Lives Care Bundle in 2016 um, and I kind of hit on the idea of I knew I was going to be talking to sort of 250 of the great and good of the world of maternity. And I hit on the idea of taking a big bag of pine cones with me. And we got there early to this big hotel in the center of Leeds. And I went round each of the tables and put a pile of pine cones in the middle of each table. Um, and so that each of these professionals would then have a pine cone to take away with them. And I still have people now who say well i heard that talk that you gave back in 2016 in leeds and i've still got the pine cone and i talked to my students about um henry and why it's important that we do certain things in terms of the care that we provide so i think that whole thing about it being a bit like a fingerprint and being unique has really helped in terms of trying to get across the message because it's a really recognizable symbol as opposed to just like a lot of other parents chris likes rainbows or butterflies and you know I, I love the fact that parents have those symbols as well but i think it in terms of education it's just become a really noticeable thing because it's unusual um but yeah they're, they're just because they're always around him every time you go up there i really love that <laughs> and now whenever i see pancones i'm gonna think of henry <laughs> so you've been a real voice for fathers in the baby loss community could you talk a bit about why you decided to speak out following Henry's death and how you've helped raise awareness and support other bereaved parents um, over the past six years. So I felt like I had to speak out because, as I said before, you know, social media hadn't developed back then quite the way that it had now. Instagram wasn't really a thing. Facebook sort of wasn't. We'd gone past the age of internet chat forums, but we'd moved on to we'd moved on to Facebook at that point, which quite often was hidden behind being part of a particular group or, 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 and it quite often is hidden behind walls. Instagram's changed the landscape on that a little bit because it's so much more instantaneous, but there just weren't any dads talking about their experiences. And, and I think it became a sort of therapy for me in the sense that actually I wanted to talk about my son. It, it wasn't necessarily initially about helping people. I just wanted to talk about my boy. And I, and I don't get to take him to school or I don't get to take him to mini rugby and I'll never get to see him get married or graduate from university, but he's still my son. And so because we don't get to do all those things with our kids, we have to find other ways to give their lives meaning 
and, and create a legacy for them in a different way, whether that's running study days or recording podcasts or whatever else it might be. We have to find ways to give their lives meaning and to let the world know that they were real because the rest of the world won't talk about them if we're not talking about them because they'll think that they're upsetting us or they're reminding us that our babies died and, and this that one of those great misunderstandings that we've forgotten that our babies have died and we only remember when people accidentally talk about it and it all feels a bit awkward when actually it's the complete opposite. Most of us want to talk about them at any any possible opportunity. And some people don't, and that's only right and proper as well, that their their stance is respected as well. But for a lot of parents, that opportunity to share their experience and share their children and tell the world that their children mattered and still matter, that's where a lot of that drive comes from. It's certainly where it comes from for me. I just want to make sure that he doesn't get forgotten and that he can still have an impact on the world, even though he's not here. And you're one of the trustees for Beyond Bee, which is a charity that provides bereavement support and training for midwives. How did you get involved with the charity? So I'd initially got involved with a local support group style charity in my hometown after Henry died. And But actually, after I'd spoken at that event in 2016, it became that's, that kind of lit a fire in me. It became a real passion that I understood from that the impact on professionals of hearing from parents because what that does is it humanizes the situations that they're all talking about on a very clinical level Um, and they stop thinking about it as numbers on a page or statistics on a graph and they start thinking about human beings And, and I realized from delivering that talk the impact that we could have on maternity services by talking about our experiences and sharing what we've learned as service users to use the the nhs term uh, and and so that became my real passion i wanted the opportunity to go and uh, and and talk about our experience firstly because i wanted to talk about my boy uh, and secondly because actually that way we're making a difference because we can't expect maternity professionals to do things better unless we're helping them know better and when they know better they can do better and so beyond b was set up steph set beyond b up in at the beginning of 2018 and, and we became friends like a lot of brief parents we became friends via social media um and she came not long after she'd set the charity up to talk alongside me i was doing a training session for a group of midwifery students at university of salford in greater manchester uh, where she'd done her midwifery training and i'd said to her you know i'm doing this talk do you want to come along and talk about b and talk about your experience and she did and actually we've become great friends really great friends since then um and actually that was a far more natural fit for me given this passion i'd found for educating professionals um than the support group side of things i could do the support group side of things but it wasn't where my strengths lay my strengths lay more on delivering presentations uh, and 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 trying to educate uh, and so actually that became because that was a charity it's a charity specifically focused on educating professionals became a really natural fit for the two of us to work really closely together on that so that's how that came to pass 
Brilliant. And if anyone's listening and they want to find out more about Beyond B, I'll include the link in the show notes. But I'd recommend listening to my interview with Steph, who founded the charity back in, I think it was episode six. Well, thank you so much, Chris. We could, I think, I feel like we could talk for hours, but unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. So just to wrap up, would you like to tell people where they can find and connect with you online? Uh, yeah, so uh, I do increasingly do more and more of my stuff on Instagram. My Instagram handle is pinecones and steady days, which I think kind of sums up the two different elements of of my journey. Um, I have a blog, pinecones but it, it hasn't had a lot on it for quite a while. Um, I've been a little bit distracted with Robin and Hallie. Um, but yeah you know instagram's probably the best place but again just to reiterate what i was saying before particularly for for bereaved dads who find themselves on this journey there are quite a lot of us out there now so if you feel like you're alone and you don't know who to talk to please just reach out to me or one of the other bereaved dads that's talking about their experiences on social media because you're not alone even though it might feel like it brilliant and thank you so much for coming on the podcast chris i really appreciate it thank you very much for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of Footprints on Our Hearts. Please help me break the silence around baby loss by sharing the podcast with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. You can follow me on Instagram at Footprints on Our Hearts and Twitter at Sky's Footprints. For detailed show notes and to support the podcast and help me raise money for Tommies, please visit our website, footprintsonourhearts.com. <laughs>